I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about Justice Neil Gorsuch's first opinion, other justices' early opinions, and why the Supreme Court might hear the travel ban case sooner than we thought. So, recently, Neil Gorsuch issued his very first opinion. Tiffany, tell us all about it. Yes, it's a very exciting opinion, all about the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. All right. Um, no, it was kind of kind of a boring case, but this has been tradition um, uh, with the last few justices, you know, to give them a unanimous opinion for their first opinion, um, so it's not overly, you know, to get them used to things. So it was 11 pages. It was unanimous. It was about statutory interpretation, um, but we got a good indicator of what we're going to get from Neil Gorsuch as a justice, which is exactly what he talked about in his confirma- confirmation hearings and what we um, read from his writings on the lower courts. It was very clear and elegant and textualist. Um, they decided um, the question of what exactly is a debt collector under under this statute. Um, but my favorite part, of course, was at the end when he threw in a line about the proper role of the courts. You know, he said some people might not, not like that the statute doesn't apply to this person, um, but Congress has to fix that. It's not our job. It's our job to apply, not amend the work of the people's representatives. And as Scalia used to say in statutory interpretation, the text is king. Indeed. So it's good to see that Gorsuch is continuing in that vein. A lot of the justices like I said before, had unanimous opinions. Um, But Justice Ginsburg was an exception to that. Um, Her first opinion was six to three, and it was in um, an ERISA case. So another very exciting um, topic. But Justice Thomas dissented um, from that opinion, and Justices O'Connor and Kennedy uh, joined him. So when Clarence Thomas joined the court, uh, one of the first cases that he that he heard involved an individual who had been institutionalized in Louisiana after a judge found that this this guy was not guilty of burglary because he was insane. And the state had a law that allowed the institutionalization institutionalization of someone until they could prove they were no longer a threat to to society. Uh, and so this this particular inmate challenged the constitutionality of this state law, and it went to the Supreme Court. So after this oral argument, the justices met at their first conference. This was Clarence Thomas's very first conference, and he didn't want to rock the boat. And so he said he was going to vote with the other justices to find the statute unconstitutional. Well, apparently he went home that night, and he thought about it, and he changed his mind. So in the morning, he called the chief justice, uh, William Rehnquist, and he said, I want a dissent in this case. And he went ahead and circulated a draft dissent to the members of the court. And before he knew it, Rehnquist and Scalia and Kennedy had all changed their votes to dissent. And so uh, what had originally been a unanimous opinion ended up being a 5-4 opinion. Uh, Jan Crawford, who's a, 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 a Supreme Court reporter, has an excellent book called Supreme Conflict, where she describes in detail how Thomas really made a splash when he joined the court. Although the media really portrayed him as uh, somewhat being Scalia's apprentice. In fact, uh, as Jan Crawford's interviews with people at the court and uh, looking at the the notes of justices that have been published after they retired, uh, in fact, Thomas was pulling Scalia further to the right. Um, (laughs) So also, uh, the justices have a tradition of writing each other little notes, particularly uh, when when a justice has written his first majority opinion. And so I found uh, an anecdote about Justice Scalia, how he apparently sent a note to Kennedy after Kennedy circulated his 
first draft majority opinion. This was a riveting case involving <laughs> uh, reimbursement of private hospitals for providing services to Medicare patients. So really exciting stuff that they were giving to the junior justice at the time. And Scalia said in his, his note to Kennedy, it's short, no legislative history, only a few footnotes my kind of judge. I'd be happy to join your opinion. And I took a look, and in fact, it was only nine pages and only had five footnotes, which is quite a feat for a Supreme Court justice. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has also told the story of how O'Connor wrote her a note after she circulated her first majority opinion saying a job well done, and uh, Ginsburg paid it forward and did the same thing for Sotomayor and Kagan after their first uh, majority opinion. So, girl power. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but um, it's a funny note story. I saw this on on Twitter like a couple months ago. They were looking through Justice Scalia's uh, Scalia's papers, and they found this note written to Justice Scalia and to Justice White from Anthony Kennedy um, on official Supreme Court letterhead that invited them to come over and try out his new fax machine, (laughs) which he kept in his basement at his house. Um, I just thought it was really funny that they passed notes like this. (laughs) Very very official notes between uh, between the justices. I think that they all lived near each other in McLean, so that might be why Kennedy extended his uh, official invitation to use his uh, very high-tech fax machine. That, That makes sense. Uh, so that brings us to our SCOTUS word of the week. Tiffany, yes, what is it? The SCOTUS term of the week is amicus curiae. Now, I know there's a debate about how you you know, pronounce all curiae, these Latin curiae. words. Lawyers don't yeah. know how to pronounce Latin. Uh, uh, you can check out Ed Whalen at Bench Memos if you want um, more detail about this. He's, he's an active writer about it. Um, but amicus means friend of the court. So in a lot of big cases, a lot of other parties um, who are not party to the specific case are interested in the case and they think it will affect them or, um, you know, their their clients and they want to flag it for the court um, and say, hey, this is really important and this case is going to have effects beyond just um, the judgment for the parties. And Justices take, um, you know, some amicus briefs really seriously. If there a lot of briefs are filed, it can be a good signal that this is, you know, important. Um, so in the October term 2014, there were 781 amicus briefs filed. Um, that is up um, from... Um, years past. So in the nine, I think that's 12 times um, <laughs> the number of briefs that were filed in the 40s and the 50s, um, and double those that were filed in the 1990s. And that's ta- taking into account the fact that in the 40s and the 50s, the court was hearing somewhere around 150 More cases. cases a term, which is uh, double what they hear now. More than double what they hear now. Yeah. Um, so the the big banner year, and I think it holds the record, is October term 2012, and there were 1,000 and three briefs filed. Um, so, but this was, you know, a big term. There was Fisher, the first Fisher, the racial preferences case um, dealing with the University of Texas, um, and DOMA, the challenge to the Defense of Marriage Act. So a lot of people um, filed briefs in those cases. Um, and in 2014, uh, justices cited a lot more amicus briefs than they usually do. They cited 55 per- um, cited amicus briefs in 55% of cases in which people had filed amicus briefs. And it's a real point of privilege for lawyers, you know, even if they're not a party to the case, to say, I've been cited by a Supreme yes, Court justice. I filed at the Supreme Court. Um, and Justice Thomas, when we had him speaking here last October um, for our Joseph Story lecture, he said that he really does read amicus briefs, especially ones um, by prominent and frequent 
frequent fly, um, filers like the ACLU. And he said he also um, finds amicus that are really helpful that explain like a technical issue incredibly well that sometimes the parties don't don't get to. Um, but what's unique this week about amicus briefs is that 16 states and D.C. Um, led by the New York Attorney General have filed a brief opposing um, cert in the travel ban case, which is very strange. It's um, a little bit like, please don't pay attention to this case. It's not important at all. And there are 16 states and the District of Columbia saying it's not important. I mean, yes. it, it really highlights the fact that this is an important case. <laughs> Yes, very true. Um, but Elizabeth, tell us more about um, why this case might come up and be decided yes, sooner the than usual. Trump's travel ban. So the 2016-2017 term is quickly coming to an end. And even though court watchers thought that this term would be a bit of a snooze fest, the justices didn't want to take on anything really high profile when they didn't know whether they'd have a ninth justice or not. So it was kind of a overall not the most dramatic term. Well, it looks like a dramatic finale may be in store <laughs> for this term. Uh, one of the cases challenging President Trump's executive order that restricts travel to the U.S. Uh, from six countries known to be terrorist uh, safe havens has now reached the Supreme Court. After the Fourth Circuit ruled against the travel order, the government petitioned the Supreme Court for review on June 1st, and the court ordered the other side to file a response by June 12th instead of giving them the standard 30 days uh, to respond. The court usually wraps up its term by the end of June. Its last scheduled day uh, on the calendar, I believe, is June 26th, which is fast approaching. But it looks like the justices may be considering fast-tracking this case and hearing it this summer. And though it typically takes several months for the Supreme Court to resolve a case, the justices can act quickly when it's necessary. And we're going to go through a few examples from history. Uh, So first, in 1971, the famous Pentagon Papers case, the New York Times had published a classified study on on the Vietnam War, and a lower court ordered the newspaper to halt its distribution. The lower court issued its decision on June 23, 1971, and the Supreme Court agreed to take the case, heard argument, and issued a decision in one week, ruling for the New York Times. That's an uh, incredibly fast speed. Um, And then in 1947, President Nixon was... um, 74. (laughs) Yes. 1974. It was 1974. so he was fighting a subpoena um, that ordered him to turn over the tapes recorded in the in the Oval Office. Uh, he lost at the lower court and appealed to SCOTUS. They granted review just nine days um, after that and scheduled argument for July 8th, which is usually after they have gone into recess. So um, the justices had to put off their summer vacations, <laughs> um, but not for too long. Um, it only took them two weeks to issue um, their opinion, and they said he had to turn over the tapes, and it was two weeks later that he resigned. Uh, maybe they ruled against him because he ruined their summer plans. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next up was the uh, a case uh, resulting from the Iranian hostage crisis in 1981. So as part of the negotiations to free the hostages, the Reagan admis- administration issued an executive order that stopped all pending litigation against the Iranian government. Now, a company, Dames & Moore, challenged the executive order because they were owed m- around $3 million by the Iranian government. The Supreme Court agreed to hear the case on, July, uh, on June 11th, 1981, and it issued a decision upholding the executive order on July 2nd, and that's, again, when the justices normally would have been on their summer vacations. And then we have uh, Bush v. Gore, the infamous case itself. So in uh, on December 8th, 2000, the Supreme Court of Florida um, ordered a recount of certain ballots. Um, 
then-Governor George W. Bush uh, uh, filed an emergency appeal at the Supreme Court. Um, and the next day, the justices put the recount on hold, um, scheduled the case for oral argument just two days later. And then it was only 24 hours, um, one day, before they issued their opinion. And the opinion totaled over um, totaled more than 50 pages. Five justices um, wrote separate opinions um, you know, saying different things, but ultimately they stopped the recount and effectively uh, delivered the win to President Bush. I mean, twenty four hours to, to write an opinion. That's pretty. That's pretty fast considering yeah. how detailed they get in in those opinions. They must have literally pulled an all nighter. There's no <laughs> way they could have done this. The poor justices, <laughs> poor so, clerks. Yeah, that's true. So then, uh, from uh, from an earlier uh, an earlier era of American history, in 1942, there was a famous case called Ex Parte Quirin. This one is a bit of an outlier uh, because the the court heard this case that was challenging the jurisdiction of a military tribunal to sentence to death the German saboteurs who had been captured in the United States during World War II. So the court heard oral arguments on July 29th and 30th and issued a brief decision siding with the government on July 31st. Uh, but ultimately, President Roosevelt had made it clear that he was going to execute the, the saboteurs regardless. So that may have had an impact on how the Supreme Court justices ruled. <laughs> uh, the executions took place on August 8th, 1942, and the court went on to write a longer opinion explaining its, its reasoning for supporting what the president was going to do uh, in October of that year. So uh, we may end up seeing the the Trump travel ban case this summer. Uh, I think there's a very uh, high chance that the justices won't delay it until the fall, um, since we're, you know, just about at the time when they would normally be going away for a few months. Uh, But I guess we will find out in the coming weeks. Yeah, I think some of the justices will be upset. I think think it's either Breyer or Kennedy that always has, like, big Fourth of July plans and, like, really pushes the chief justice to make sure they're done by then. Uh, so whoever that is, they're probably going to be upset about. Well, this. and many years, of course, Kennedy uh, spends the summer in Austria teaching uh, teaching yeah. at a school there. Although, uh, if he's planning on retiring, who knows? Who knows what his summer plans will be? Yes. Uh, so we're going to wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, New Justice Edition, uh, and I'm going to try to stump Tiffany. I'm ready. <laughs> First question: Which current justice holds the record for most questions asked in their first oral argument? First argument. You know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it was Gorsuch because he was super active in the first argument this term. That is correct. He asked 22 questions in his first argument uh, this term, unseating the previous rookie record holder, Sonia Sotomayor, (laughs) who asked 15 questions in her first oral argument. So good job. Thank you. Second question. What current justice waited the longest before issuing his or her first written opinion? Oh, I don't know if I know this one. I'm going to say Justice Kennedy. Um, it, it was not, and I have a, a, a footnote about Justice Kennedy after our next question. It was Stephen Breyer. He spent more than 100 days on the bench before authoring a majority opinion, and this was in a case dealing with the Federal Arbita- Arbitration Act. So, again, keeping in line with with, with, uh, with the chief assigning uh, really riveting cases to the junior <laughs> justice. Um, and, in fact, he had not even— uh, Uh, written a dissenting opinion until the week before his first majority opinion came out. So third and final question. Yes. Which current justice was the quickest to write his or her first majority opinion? Um, I'm going to say it was Justice Kagan because she was a solicitor general and like, you know, as the top government lawyer, you're used to like turning things out really quickly. 
Uh, that is not correct, but your instincts are are, are, are close. It was Chief Justice John Roberts, who I, I believe had worked in the Solicitor General's office at some point. He wrote an opinion just 29 days after joining the court in a case involving whether awarding attorney's fees uh, was appropriate when the case had been remanded to a, uh, removed to a state court. So this is interesting because the Senate had to rush to confirm Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts to the court in September um, to get him there in time for the start of the new term, because I, I think it would be difficult to start the term without the Chief Justice. <laughs> so they rushed yeah. to get him to get him seated uh, for that first uh, that first Monday in October. And then just 29 days later, they were already deciding a case. Uh, that's that's not all that common that the, the court is already issuing opinions in in the first month of, of its term. Um so anyway, uh, we're, we're glad to see Neil Gorsuch's first opinion. And I, I think he was how many days? Uh, not that long on the court. I mean, he didn't beat uh, just, uh, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts' uh, record, but he certainly was uh, well ahead of Stephen Breyer. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also follow us on Twitter uh, at Tiffany H. Bates and at E.H. Slattery.